From the studio on the University of Georgia campus, this is Unscripted. I'm your host, Alan Fleury. On each episode of Unscripted, I'll be talking to scholars, artists, journalists, and leaders from all corners of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, as well as guest speakers and lecturers to the UGA campus. My guest on this episode of Unscripted is Sebastian Kampf, Senior Lecturer in Peace and Conflict Studies at the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland in Australia. Dr. Kampf's general expertise lies in the areas of international security, the transformation of violent conflict, ethics, and the laws of war, and the role a transforming global media landscape plays in contemporary conflicts. Kampf is the author of Saving Soldiers or Civilians, Casualty Aversion versus Civilian Protection in Asymmetric Conflicts. Kampf analyzes transformative effects that the internet, social media apps, and cloud computing have had on societies and human beings. In particular, he looks at the original ideals underpinning cyberspace before focusing on broad social trends that are affecting cyberspace today and how these impact privacy, human rights, and the freedom of speech. These developments, he argues, do not bode well for the future of the internet, privacy, and human rights, and therefore require each of us to change our attitude towards the information technology we are using on a daily basis. Kant presented a lecture on campus this week, The Geopolitics of Cyberspace, Global Political Trends and Their Impact on Security, Privacy, and Human Rights. Sebastian Kant, welcome to Unscripted. Thanks, and thanks for having me. I'd like to begin with imagining this completely unusual scenario. I've booked a flight to Indianapolis for a professional conference. The day arrives, and I'm on the shuttle to the airport. On the shuttle, I scroll Instagram, see a pair of boots I like in an ad, go to their site, and purchase a shirt. I post a status update to Facebook as we arrive at the airport. In the security line, I show my e-ticket on my phone. At the gate, I scroll several news sites, like a few posts from friends that pop up as notifications. Texting my wife before we board, once seated, I put my phone on airplane mode and take out a book. During the course of those very typical actions in my digital existence, is there any room for privacy concerns? Well, I think you've uh, hit the nail on the head there straight away. We have become so immersed in social media, in the hyper-mediatized age these days that we don't really think much about how we use that technology. It's as if we have got added this kind of information highway into our lives that we are kind of unconscious of that we're actually doing it. And um, one of the things we need to be aware of is that whatever we do online these days is no longer something that we that entails information that no longer is kept private. It's information that we either entrust with the commercial sector because these happen to be the social media apps that we're using or the phones that we have bought, right? Um, the purchases we've made on a particular website. Or they might be subject to government collecting all this data and using it. So in a way, everything we do with our digital footprint is something that is no longer kept within our own possession. We are no longer just the consumer of that kind of technology or that kind of uh, information we are the product there's you know the internet sector various companies are interested precisely in what we're doing online you know like a lot of the kinds of things like you, you described instagram just before we get it for free 
right? Meaning, however, that we get it free commercially. We don't pay for that, mm -hmm. but we pay the price. Which is? For the, the price is the information that we give them. Right. That we, that we, when we click the end user license agreement that says, I accept, I agree, <laughs> we basically hand over the rights to our information, which we give away voluntarily. It makes me think that we should spend the next 45 minutes just reading the terms of service agreements on our mobile phones. You know, uh, I do this with my students. Like we do this in one of the first classes when I teach a course on that kind of topic. And it's really eye opening. You know, these are 17, 18, 19 year old high school, uh, sorry, no, university students. And of course, they are the digital natives. Yes. Right. Unlike you and me who have known the world without email, without yeah. a mobile phone. So they are fully immersed in this without thinking about this, without being conscious about it. And they've gotten so used, like everyone else, to just click I accept that we never really bother reading these. I mean, they're difficult to read in the first place, but sure. it's really eye-opening to do this. And I can urge anyone, next time you stumble across an end-user license agreement or terms of service, don't just scroll through and click I accept. Actually sit down and try to read them. Because ultimately, it's our data. And what happens to that data and what we allow these companies to do with it is actually really important. So there, there are native users of social media and cell phone technology, but even you and I who have learned this, we're just that we, we seem just as oblivious to these terms. Absolutely. I think it's, it's not just a divide, but it's not, there's no divide between the digital natives and the digital migrants, as they are called. It's mm. something that is pervasive throughout society. Mm. We've just gotten used to clicking I accept, you know, and we are so used to, in a way, turning our digital lives inside out. And we're doing this at a time when information is the hottest product out there in the economy. Everyone is interested in our information, right? Mm -hmm. And social media companies are this because they can target us with better advertisement. Mm -hmm. Google is interested because we are living in an information society and Google is working very hard to provide a service where it thinks it knows what it is that we want to have next. So when you go, in your example earlier, to the airport, the aim of companies like Google is to anticipate that you will go to the airport. And they will be able to tell you before you even know that you want it, what the best route is that you should take, what kind of traffic to avoid, right? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of information society that we have entered into and that's only, gonna, that's only growing exponentially in all directions. And all of the companies use this very language when they're selling us these products. They're telling us what they're doing. Is there a difference between how we should understand privacy and information security? What do you mean by that? Well, is there a difference between that, secure and private versus free and open? Yeah, I think if you want to keep your private data and information secure and private to yourself, don't entrust it to any electronic means. Mm. <laughs> keep writing your physical diary. Right. Keep things in your drawer. As soon as you type it into your phone, into your computer, if you save it on a allegedly safe open cloud, this is you handing over the permission to these companies to do with the data what it is that they want to do with it. And you will be coming back to let's read the end user license agreements. It's <laughs> eye-opening because yes. you basically hand over all the rights to these companies. So I think we need to be really aware of what it is that we entrust to them and what we allow them to do with it. And that's not us even talking, beginning to talk about surveillance, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Which is a very, which is equally important because that's the security sector, which of course is now very interested in collecting through bulk 
through mass surveillance as much information about us citizens as is possible. And not only to collect it, but to store it eternally and to analyze it. Now, this is one of the global trends that you reference, the, the state's involvement in cyberspace. Yeah, like, uh, you know, if you, I mean, it's a really interesting development if you think about this, right? Cy cyberspace, the very idea that there is such a thing like the internet is first and foremost an invention of science fiction authors. So science fiction has been for, for several decades before the internet came about, been dreaming and anticipating world and scenarios where cyberspace was a reality. And then through a whole series of really interesting political developments and actually accidents, the internet came about. And end of October, just a month ago, we celebrated the 60th anniversary, the 60th anniversary of the first time that a message was sent from machine to machine between two universities in California, right? But it was a closed system. It was mostly used between academics and others. And then, um, and it was funded, of course, by the, the US military, mm -hmm. right? As a device that allowed for communication to continue in the case of a nuclear fallout mm -hmm. or a nuclear attack so that you can have a network through which information could float rather than one sort of centralized hub that could be taken out. So that eventually was turned over in the early 1990s to the public for the World Wide Web. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got into um, the internet that we're using today. So it originated with state funding, but then became something that was turned over to the public. And at that moment, there were very, very few states who even had an idea about the internet. So if we go from today back 15 to 20 years, and we did a global survey about state attitudes, government attitudes towards the internet, we would have found that barely any state, any government had any interest in the internet. And very, very few, the very, very few who actually had an interest had a deliberate laissez-faire attitude about the internet. Hmm. Meaning that the attitude was the state should not get involved in the internet. We should leave this as a kind of stateless, anarchic space. But right? it wasn't going to be a, it wasn't going to be a state itself. What was it for? What was it imagined for? Is it sharing information? Yeah. Um, there was, I mean, there's this joke, right, that Al Gore invented the internet. And that's <laughs> certainly a bit of an exaggeration, but there is a certain truth to that. As a congressman, mm -hmm. he was very, very instrumental in setting up the laws and guidelines around which the internet now turned over to the public should be regulated, which was with the clear idea that the state should not interfere. The purpose behind this, and you see this then come to the fore with the Clinton-Gore administration, was the idea that if the United States really drives and builds out and helps building out the infrastructure of the Internet, it would allow the United States to catch up economically and retain or regain its economic leadership in the world. Mm. So there was a huge economic interest in turning it over to the public and letting the economic sector, letting business build out the infrastructure rather than the state. That, in a way, was the situation when the Internet became known to all of us. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to today and you see that this situation has been turned completely upside down. Not only are all states around the globe not only interested but actually really concerned about the internet. And most of these governments have now placed concerns about the security of cyberspace, security of the internet at the top of their security agenda. Mm. So we've come from the state being the original sponsor for the setting up of the internet structure and the network of networks, as it was called, to 
then withdrawing from that space, handing it over to the public as a stateless anarchical space, and then over the last 15 to 20 years, really reasserting their role in that. And it wasn't just, it's not just um, state governments, it's governments at every level, it's private companies. This is our primary concern, is the security of our information systems. Yeah, look, we now talk about the Internet of Things, right? Buy a fridge, you can't (laughs) buy an ordinary fridge. It's a smart fridge that monitors what is in your fridge, when is it going to expire. You can program in, do you want to have healthy food in there or not? It will tell you all this, it will predict these things, it will register this. We find this very convenient. I mean, I personally don't, but a lot of people would find this convenient. But of course, that's done to gain more information about our consumer habits that then can be sold and used to make money out of us. That's why I earlier said we're not just the consumers of these goods and services. We've become the product, right? So it's a complete reversal of that. And it's not just smart fridges. It's our car. It's a computer, right? It's like we now have the Internet of Things, which means that there's something like over 60 billion devices worldwide mm-hmm. that are connected to the internet. And of course, that means that, you know, it's not just the fridge in your car. It's like complex traffic systems. It's our hospital systems. So obviously, we want to make sure that these systems are secure, right? Uh, Well, why are we so innocent about that? It's not like I would walk around with a t-shirt with my bank account number on on it. Um, But why are we so uh, just cavalier about having all of this personal, very personal information just kind of be out there? I think there's a certain innocence to that. Right. We've we've become socialized into this mm-hmm. and um, we just have taken our normal habits of storing things that we didn't want others to see. And we've just transported this into the electronic age mm. without thinking much about the consequences. You know, um, William Gibson, um, who is the person who termed the term cyberspace, uh, described our approach to the Internet as a consensual hallucination. And I think it's a really appropriate way of terming that. You know, it describes really well how we as societies walk through all of this technology that's surrounding us and that we've become dependent on. Mm -hmm. We do not think much beyond the screens in front of us. We do not think of what happens to our information. What are the consequences of me putting that information and entrusting it into the hands of private companies, for example? Yeah, it's a it's a virtual collective experience, which brings up to just reminds me of virtual reality in general. Did that come about from uh, um, designing and people playing video games? It seems to go in waves. It seems to get momentum and lose it and gain it and lose it. And people have been playing these violent video games forever, video games. It seems like, of course, that experience is desensitizing people to the horrors of violence and war. But it's also acculturating us to these very radical ideas. Mm. that separate us from our actions. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is that um, the um, in the late 1990s, the Pentagon gave funding to set up what is called the Institute for Creative Technologies in downtown Los Angeles. And it is uh, concerned with researching virtual reality, augmented reality, and using it for what they call researching, training, and healing soldiers. And what's interesting about this is it is kind of a hub that brings together the talent of Hollywood, set designers, screenwriters, um, graphic designers, virtual reality builders, computer experts, militaries, academics, to 
understand and to research the power that virtual reality and first-person shooter games have in making people addicted to playing them. What is it that makes these such compelling things to do for humans? And how can that ability that these games, that virtual reality, have be used for military practices? And what's interesting is that you see all the big gaming companies, uh, Ubisoft, Sega and others, are part of this conglomerate. Mm. And they're interested, of course, in being part of cutting-edge research and can use the findings to then translate them into the games that they release out in the, into the public, right? So it's the interest in what is the narrative power of virtual reality of these games, right? And how can we use this and then how can this be commercialized? But at the same time, how can this be used for the training of soldiers, for the healing of post-traumatic stress disorders and so on? So, that, so there is, I think, coming back to your earlier question, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a bit of an interesting link here from video games to the kind of augmented virtual reality that you've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Do you think it affects, uh, or I should ask, how does it affect politics, national politics, state-level politics, when people begin to kind of change the way they think and understand war and conflict and violence? Does it have an effect? I think that... Uh, First-person shooter video games, which, by the way, are now outdoing the biggest cinema blockbuster releases by a mile, have become, together with films, the kind of reality that we take in. And quite often the reality of war. And, you know, there's, it's, it's not coincidental. I mean, there has been a long history of a close collaboration here in the United States of a collaboration between the Pentagon and the Hollywood film industry and uh, augmented reality industry in producing films, in producing movies, in producing television series, in co-producing first-person shooter video games, right? And the military has an interest in this because it allows them to um, rewrite history mm. and impact the way in which history might be remembered or understood. It allows them to recruit people Right? And for the um, Hollywood economy, it's a really uh, economically interesting bargain because they can get their hold on you know, military kit that's worth billions of dollars um, and get you know, better shot at what seems to be the real deal. Mm -hmm. right? And so that brings these kind of really different actors together to collaborate. And the Pentagon, the, the person at, in charge of the Pentagon's Hollywood liaison office, Phil Strapp, who retired last year after 20 year, 27 years in service, famously said it has been called a um, relationship of mutual exploitation. <laughs> and I think that describes it quite well. So what I'm trying to say in a quite convoluted way, and I'm really sorry for no, this, no, is no, that... No, 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 you're doing great. You know, like these first-person shooter games, they now get released a month two months, three months after the actual military situations have unfolded. So you take the fall of Baghdad, right? The toppling of Saddam's statue. Three months later, you can buy the first-person shooter video game that has been produced in collaboration with the military and actually replay that kind of mission. Mm. And you can play it interactively which is the big difference, right? It's different from you sitting and watching TV of some war unfolding somewhere else to I am now fully immersed in this and I can play this out. So I think a lot of the way in which we as societies have come to understand conflict has become 
mixed between what it is that we read in the news, that we watch on television, and how we play it ourselves. Well, I become part of the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. I'm participating. Unscripted is a production of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, the oldest, largest, and most academically diverse college at the University of Georgia. More than 650 faculty members provide instruction in every classical discipline and all branches of empirical inquiry. Critical thinking skills, from languages and literature to biological sciences, build the foundation for every profession as they empower students to be informed, engaged citizens. For more on the Franklin College, visit franklin.uga.edu. Welcome back to Unscripted. My guest in this episode is Sebastian Kampf, a lecturer and expert on the geopolitics of cyberspace, global political trends, and their impact on security, privacy, and human rights. Big data is leading us, and everyone seems to be happily happy to go along with it. But I wonder where it's leading us to. Um, are there dangers of making decisions by algorithm? It's essentially AI, correct? Yeah, the extent to which it is AI is an interesting question, but I think that uh, the role of algorithms um, is something that is now with us and it will only increase. But I think they're very, very important for us to understand. So for example, if I, same, same course that I'm teaching, I make my students open all their Gmail accounts and their Google accounts and say, okay, now go to Google and we all search for the same term in the same classroom, the same search term, do a screenshot of the findings of your first um, search results and upload it to a shareable platform. And now let's look at what 120 students have uploaded at the same point in the same time. And you will see that not a single Google search result is the same mm -hmm. as their neighbors. Wow. And that's the reaction that students have. It's like, wow. And so it's a really nice way to teach because I can then say, okay, so, but why is that the case? And then you will have, of course, students are like, oh, it's algorithms. And then it's like, okay, but what are algorithms? Yes. How do they function? How do they produce this, right? And then you find out that Google has something like around 100 different factors that impact on how the results are being generated. Mm -hmm. No one fully knows because it's not public, right? But ultimately, they decide what they think is the most relevant, the most important for us to read, to consume. You know, most big newspapers, the New York Times, Le Figaro, The Guardian and others, they all operate with algorithms, mm -hmm. which means no one reads the same, even the website, mm -hmm. because they think they need to cater towards your particular interests. But it's what they think your interests are. And so, in a way, the question to ask is not only what is it that we get to see, but probably more importantly, what is it that we don't get to see? Mm -hmm. Your Facebook feeds will show you things that Facebook algorithm things are most relevant to you, which means if you politically are leaning towards the Democrats, it will um, promote the posts and updates from your friends which the algorithm believes are also politically inclined in your way and will further down and reduce the significance of those who might be sitting on the Republican side and vice versa, mm -hmm. which ultimately is, you know, leading us down these echo chambers, right? Where we now live in worlds where we get to see what the system thinks we want to see. 
And it's very hard to break out of that, right? To get exposed towards more controversial views mm -hmm. that do not already, um, you know, confront us with our already preconceived, be it religious, ideological, political, whatever kind of attitudes that we already have. Right. It's the polarization that everyone laments, except it's self-perpetuating or it's being perpetuated by the way media is delivered to us. I always think about, uh, or I often think about it, it causes me to do this, is buy a paper newspaper and read through whatever it is. There's so few of them now. But the most important reason to do that for me is finding things I'm not looking for. Yeah. But, you know, there's really, I mean, we're in early age stages, right, in this kind of world that we live in. But there's a couple already of really handful, handful of really interesting uh, pieces of research people have done. And it goes a bit along these lines. They say, you know, this generation now, the world in which we live in, we've never had more opportunities to check news than any generation before. Right? right. You could in the past go to the next uh, shop and buy maybe like what, five to 10 different newspapers, right? You'd struggle to find one from other side of the planet. Now, at least theoretically, you can get hold of all of these mm. and you can expose yourself to the widest variety of views and opinions. But the consumer habits of all of us seem to go in the exact opposite direction. We seem to be confused, at least that's what these studies show, and we can't handle the diversity and the choice that we have. And so the consequences are that people now tend to navigate towards those website, news websites that already confirm their preconceived political ideas, mm -hmm. right? Right. So we could break out, but the evidence shows that we don't. <laughs> yeah, it's almost as though we, how, as we've become more conscious of our food diet, we need to become really conscious of our media diet yeah. to, to deliberately look around the globe or around the country or around the region and find some different perspectives. That yeah. sounds cliche almost, but. Yeah. But, you know, I think that's been like a big value amongst a lot of people through, you know, for, for decades, right. if not centuries, right? The idea that you, for, 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 you know, it's even like a civic duty to expose yourself to an all-rounded idea of where your information comes from, where your knowledge and understanding comes from. But, you know, with it also comes this uh, tendency now that people are not willing to subscribe to newspapers, mm -hmm. to pay for their news, right? So that's why the entire printing business is in, news printing business in such dire crisis and Has hasn't, been. yeah, and hasn't found any way out of this. I mean, they're all experimenting in one way or another, but they're all struggling with the same, in the same kind of way. So we're willing to pay for television. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of big old traditional media that has not been affected by this to the same extent. I'm not sure about radio itself, but it's the printing press. Right. And so there's this tendency now to, you know, we only take account of things that we can get for free. And that's another problem in a way. Right. If you want to have good journalism, if you want to have good news, you need to be prepared to pay for it as well. Right. And it seems fixed. It seems like all everything we're talking about is this is the way it is and it's headed here. But actually, it's very dynamic. It's not clear how it's going to how it's going to turn or which way it's going to go. Yeah, because that actually paying even paying for uh, newspapers online has not sorted itself out. You know, people will pay for certain things, but they want to read other things. So that has not actually been determined. Yeah. And, you know, if you talk to uh, newspapers uh, and newspaper editors, and those in charge of them, they will tell you that one of the problems for them is that, of course, the 
the revenue they can make through advertisement is significantly reduced in an online context compared to the print context, right? They will make significantly less. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you swap one with the other. No, 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 no. Um, do you think that there are... Uh there could be some space that that gets created at some point in the future to revert back to not not all, all you know not us doing away with email per se, but uh, the the print space being reimagined in some way that is national in scope and yet local in its customization. Maybe we'll relearn our our real experience and the contours of the, our digital experience that we seem to prefer. Yeah, like sometimes I'm dreaming of. I mean, having just criticized algorithms, right, and, and the kind of—I mean, they do good things, but also we need to be aware of the of the of the darker side of them. But having just done that, I think sometimes uh, you know, it qualifies what I'm going to say now. But sometimes I'm dreaming about a service that would allow me to say, okay, I'm interested. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a scholar in international politics, so I want to get a well-rounded view of international politics and conflicts around the globe. So, is there a service that allows me to pay that service so that they get me the top stories from? X number of newspapers from around the globe filtered into my inbox on a daily basis that I can specifically request certain kind of things. You know, right. and I'd be I'd be willing to pay for that. Right. Um, that I think doesn't exist yet. And 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 even languages are no barrier. Yeah, absolutely. You can read a you can read a newspaper in Urdu or subscribe to one and read at least a rough translation of it. Yeah. Um, and that's another wonderful thing. That's, and that's, that's important to remember. Some of the things we've traded for this sort of open uh, access to our personal information is the ease by which we can book vacations and learn languages. That's really amazing, actually. Yeah. I mean, it has made our life significantly more exciting. Mm -hmm. You know, we're dating online now, oh, yeah, right? That's very true. Um, we're breaking up online too. But... <laughs> You know, it's it's allowing us at the tip of our fingers to book holidays, to organize our lives, mm -hmm. right, through a phone, <laughs> right, where, you know, and, you know, these are very powerful devices. I think the um, penultimate iPhone that came out on the market had more computer capacity than the first Apollo mission. Yes. And we are not carrying this around with us. I mean, the development is incredible. Yeah. And it, it, it really harkens back to the original promise of the internet and, and uh, the advent of the IT age in general. There's an interesting thing that you've said about uh, that it's important not to think of the internet as a special kind of magic. Mm. Yeah. Well, we, we, we approach it with that kind of view that it's, uh, well, the kind of William Gibson consensual hallucination, right? It's something that is, you know, we, we think it's just something that's always there, just like running water 24-7. We take it for granted that it will always be there. But it's not the case. You know, there's various forces working on it. And it's not very clear. Well, there, you know, the internet is changing right before our eyes. And the direction it is going is taking us further away from the ideals that the original founders had in mind, which was that it is a stateless space where politics is not in, which is a space for experimentation, a space to connect seamlessly to all sorts of people around the world, to share information, to share knowledge, to get to know one another. Um, that's becoming more and more difficult today. And, you know, the idea to not take it as a special kind of magic is to, you know, think about what that device does. How does our mobile phone actually work, right? How do we get to send? How, how does it work if I send a WhatsApp message that ends up on your phone, mm -hmm. right? The email that we send, the tweet that we post. And you realize that 
you know, this is not just going out magically out in the ether and then miraculously appears in someone's inbox. There's, there's a huge physical infrastructure. The internet weighs an awful lot, right? And we mm-hmm. tend to forget that because it's all wireless now, right? right? But it's these kind of physical infrastructures that are, of course, the sources of contestation politically, right? That's where you can actually tap in and you can bulk collect like the NSA or the Five uh, Eyes in the Sky Alliance actually does. You can bulk collect all this information by mirroring it. Um, that's where you can wiretap certain things. That's where you can influence how and where that information flows and where it cannot enter, right? Mm-hmm. So. It's really important questions if we're interested in sustaining that kind of wonderful, gigantic infrastructure that I think we all enjoy and benefit from into the future. It's really our responsibility to understand it better. We have a responsibility to ourselves and our politics and our sort of national and international life to, to understand it better. Yeah, it's kind of, um, you know, we talk about civic duties a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of uh, those aspects we have to build into our understanding of what it means to be a good citizen. It's like a civic duty towards for for us to understand how these technologies actually work if we want to sustain them into the future. If we don't, we just let it sort of slip away, right? And we're going to become more and more influenced by this in ways that we might not actually know. And, you know, like a really good way to also um, test this out for you is to try and to deliberately challenge yourself by unplugging from all the digital technology that surrounds us for like 24 hours. Live like in the 80s, right? Do like a retro movie of your own life for just 24 hours and you you can fail. I do this with my students as well. They have to try and do it. It's okay if they fail, but it's about living up to that challenge. And it's really eye-opening. Because you, for the first time, or they, as digital natives, for the first time, experience the hypermediatized world through its absence. Mm-hmm. And you start realizing how more or less everything we do goes on through these types of devices. And at the same time, it has these nice side effects that students, they have to write a written feedback. They, they get back to me and say, like, I looked at the sky and I haven't done this for a long time. Or I had a very meaningful, long conversation without being interrupted in any sort of way. So, you know, it is something for like inner peace Mm -hmm. that is not a bad thing to do. I'm not saying that we can get off of all of this. No. Right. I think it's like too much ingrained in how society works and how we function. But to just be aware of the sheer extent to which we are, you know, connected to that. It's, it's sad in a way, but refreshing to remember that the power to do that is, is in our hands. Um, and hopefully we can continue to learn about it through your scholarship and your teaching. Sebastian Kampf, thanks so much for coming on. It's great to talk with you. Thank you, and thanks for having me. 